This is a Radical Exchange production. Welcome back to Radical Exchanges. In today's episode, Anasuya Sengupta speaks with Matt Pruitt as they discuss the culture of free information on the internet and the hidden power dynamics that underlie who gets to share and access this information. Anasuya is co-director of Who's Knowledge, a global campaign to center the knowledge of marginalized communities, which collectively represent the majority of the world in digital spaces on the internet. She is also a lauded poet, author, and activist. This discussion explores the power dynamics and privileges built into our digital technologies, as Anasuya underlines the radical importance of empowering underrepresented communities on the internet. This exchange asks you to evolve your thinking of what exactly the internet is, who it represents, and who it's for. It's a truly introspective talk, and we hope you enjoy it. This is a continuation of our mini-season called A New Era of Democracy and was originally filmed for our RxCTV program. This is the Radical Exchanges podcast, and this is A New Era of Democracy. Hello, Anasuya. I'm so glad we, <laughs> that this worked out. It's great to talk to you. How are you? I'm doing well, and, and thanks, Matt. I'm glad to be, I'm glad to be here uh, with you, so thank you for inviting me. I'm joined today by Anasuya Sengupta, who is a co-director and co-founder of Who's Knowledge. She has led initiatives in India and the USA, across the global south and internationally for over 20 years to amplify marginalized voices in virtual and physical worlds. She's the former chief grant-making officer at Wikimedia Foundation and the former regional program director at the Global Fund for Women. Anasuya is a 2017 Shuttleworth Foundation Fellow and received a 2018 Internet and Society Award from the Oxford Internet Institute. And um, alongside many other uh, honors, she's an accomplished uh, poet and author. But I I would actually love also to hear in your own words how you sort of see your your work at this juncture. Um, What's the, what's the, you know, your sort of summation of the, of the project that you are now engaged in? Well, um, one of the ways that I think about what I do right now is to connect unlikely uh, allies and unlikely uh, co-conspirators across different worlds, different communities and different spaces. And I do that primarily as co-founder and co-director of Who's Knowledge, which is, as you said, a global multilingual campaign and a feminist collective uh, to center the knowledges of marginalized communities um, online. And by marginalized, we mean marginalized by historical and ongoing structures of power and privilege. So really the minoritized majority of the world. Um, And in order to do this, we are centered very much in a, uh, in a sense of knowledge justice um, and of making sure that we are uh, honoring, amplifying and leading with the design and imagination of those who have been marginalized so far. Great. Thanks. And it seems to me that whose knowledge works, whose knowledge's work connects fairly intimately to the question of digital infrastructure, the way that we communicate with one another online and in sort of new and emerging um, spaces. And I wonder if you could say 
a little bit about how how you view the i mean this is a this is a really big question obviously but you know how when, when you sort of look back on the past like you know 25 years of of the internet how do you view it as interacting with these structures of of uh, of privilege and, and marginalization yeah that's uh that is a big question <laughs> i'm gonna try and do it some justice um 25 years it's uh it feels both like forever and yesterday in one breath right it's so interesting um especially at this time where uh i feel like time is both stretched and compressed simultaneously um I was amongst the first generations in India to study computer science in school. So um, we actually got to use computers. We, of course, had to share them because they were a precious, precious resource. I remember we had to make sure that we took off our shoes whenever we went into the computer lab because, you know, those three computers that about 10 of us were sharing um, were such a precious and at that time really cutting edge uh, technology for us. And yet I was privileged to be part of the generation that could study computer science at school. And that was because even though I was from a middle class family, I was so-called upper caste, um, or what we say uh, is Savarna. And the caste system, as you know, is an extremely uh, pernicious um, and deeply oppressive social structure that has been around for millennia. Um, and so recognizing that as I experienced different forms of discrimination as a woman in a patriarchal society, as a middle-class person who had certain uh, spaces denied me because of uh, my lack of resources or uh, the choices I could make, I could still make many more choices than the Dalit or Muslim or indigenous or Adivasi. In, in, in our context, we call them Adivasis, the first inhabitants of South Asia, of India. And so growing up, I recognized, even in my own living, this simultaneity of being both in positions of power and dispower in positions of privilege and disprivilege based on context. And most importantly, um, as we were discovering this new digital world, I was simultaneously feeling that sense of being on the margins looking in. My national newspapers essentially talked about the rest of the world as the center right? Europe and North America was the center of the world. We in India were looking into that center from the peripheries. We were never included unless the uh, stories were about poverty or about um, some horrific uh, natural disaster or engineered man-made disaster. Um, and so all of these different elements of being um, in that first generation to understand technological infrastructure, participate in being online, uh, to start coding, um, to start um, being involved in a more global digital world, 
and yet to continue to feel different forms of marginalization is part of the experience that I bring to the work that I do today. And when we think about digital infrastructure, I think the way that I sometimes uh, think of infrastructure itself, as many infrastructure scholars have talked about it, I find it useful to think about it as the underlying systems that we often forget exist and we only see when they break down, right? Um, And in many ways, the internet is that now, 25 years on. And yet COVID has been such an extraordinarily good and brutal example of what happens when those infrastructures break down or what happens when those infrastructures are far more inequitable than we already think. So just to recognize that the internet, or at least different forms of digital connectivity, um, are primarily led by the global south. That is, most of the people who are online today are connected digitally in some way, um, are from the global south. 75% of those online are are from the global south. Um, And over 60% of the world is digitally connected, even if most of them are through a mobile phone. So very particular ways of being connected. Um, More than 45% of all women are connected. And yet, even today, the internet, to me, as a relatively privileged brown woman from the global south, feels like my old newspaper, right? It feels like I'm still on the margins of the world looking in. I can access it, but once I get online, the content online, the the platforms online, the apps that I use are not designed with me or for me. The content is not about me or about my communities. I'm continuing to be on the margins looking in. And if that is true for me, how much more is it true for those who are far more marginalized and disprivileged than me? And that's really the sort of sense of um, critique around digital infrastructure that I bring. And at the same time, the sense of hope because digital infrastructures, because the technological infrastructures that we have today also give us the potential for bringing all of our different embodied selves online in very rich, textured ways that just a telephone or just the telegraph may not have. But we have not yet realized that potential. And that's that's the... That feels like my day job and my night job right now. Yeah. So it seems like, you know, when you look at many different aspects of digital infrastructure, there seem to be lots and lots of structures that have this feature of somehow encouraging, like, reification of biases that are already there. So, like, a simple example of this would be, you know, like, algorithms that pick up on discriminatory patterns that that already exist and then use them to make predictions and 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 thus uh, make worse the the thing that they're trying to predict but I, but there also seem to be the, you know I, I think that these these structures of sort of reification go beyond mere algorithms right so like for example you have you've written about uh, like Wikipedia 
the way that you know so wikipedia is like you, you know you can you can give the, the numbers I, I i don't know them but but you know the vast majority of editors are are like white men from europe and north america how do you how do you think about breaking down these these structures of of reification whether they're algorithmic or whether they're just social like in this in the way that wikipedia is Algorithmic is also social, <laughs> um, yeah. as we know. But um, the way that I think about it is that when you look from the back end to the front end of the internet, um, at every point, there are choices we have made about who designs, who leads, and whose imagination is at the core of the architecture of the internet. Um, those choices have often been led by uh historical structures of colonialism and capitalism right so um there is a reason why there have been white men from europe and north america at the heart of some of these uh technologies and even the white women who were involved have been forgotten and certainly the black women who were involved have been forgotten um but one of the things we forget when we talk about sort of the back end and the front end as user experience is what's in the middle. So if you can get online, access itself, as we know, is deeply problematic and differentiated. But if we can get online, what is the content that we experience? What is the content that we see? Whose knowledge do we see online? And Wikipedia is a really good proxy for that because, of course, it is unlike, you know, most other top 20 websites in the world. It is a community project. It is a free and open source project. It's built on free and open source software. It is, uh, based on the amazing and dedicated work of volunteers around the world. And it continues to have the uh, elements of structural power that you were speaking of. So um, while I was at the Wikimedia Foundation, we started disaggregating some of the data around both content and contributors. And um, there's a lot of data around this, but suffice it to say, even the broad aspects of it are quite shocking, which is that the encyclopedia that we imagine is the encyclopedia of the world is still deeply limited in who contributes, so mostly white men from North America and Europe. And um, only one in 10 um, of the contributors are projected to identify female. 20% uh, of the world, mostly based in Europe and North America, writes about 80% of the world, right? Um, there are more articles about Antarctica that are geotagged on uh, Wikipedia than about all the uh, countries in Africa. So just to recognize that the internet not just sometimes reifies and reflects the, the power dynamics and inequities of our physical worlds, but in some ways exacerbates it even further because we have a mythos around the internet being democratic and emancipatory and a place of possible global solidarity. It's not that it is not 
I mean, you and I are talking right now across time zones, across continents. Uh, we met digitally. We've never met in person, right? We've uh, pursued our common interests digitally, as many of us have over the last few years and really over the last 20 years. And yet, even as we have the possibility of that, if we if we continue to assume that all that the internet is, is a space of possible emancipation and uh, democracy without really looking at these power dynamics, especially around content, I think we do ourselves a great disservice. Yeah. So the communication scholar Fred Turner has a, he kind of tells a narrative that has helped me think about this. Uh, w- w- which is basically, uh, you know, for the benefit of the audience, it's it's this idea that th- there was a sort of a an ethos of pro democratic media that emerged in the middle of the 20th century in the United States, almost as a form of kind of democratic propaganda, which 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 kind of uh, had this had this quality of like allowing the experiencer of the media to sort of make their own way through it. It's a sort of like choose your own adventure media experience type of thing. And that, that aesthetic led to this sort of 1960s aesthetic of like the open, you know, the, like the, the, the be in and the, and the happening and the sort of like unstructured environment which was meant to embody a democratic ethos. But in fact, it, in, in many cases, these led to, you know, things like, like the sort of canonical case would be like the sort of 1970s commune, which, has, you know, having been sort of uh, stripped of all old institutions, like now just becomes a place of like where power and privilege in the sense of race and, and gender just are just sort of like running rampant. So, so there's this sort of you can see that this pattern of, okay, you sort of pull down the these old institutions and create something that you that you intend to be open or democratic, but it actually what it does is it just sort of clears the space for other forms of privilege to be to like express themselves even more strongly. I I think that you know I'm I'm curious. I mean, for, I mean, first of all, there's 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 lots and lots of of worries around this that I have and lots of kind of you know directions I, what I'm trying to say is I worry about this in a lot of different contexts but I think my question is how do you think about that tension of sort of like when we pull down old institutional structures that might themselves be oppressive or or flawed or 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 something and then that can create the space for like unforeseen types of oppression how do you how do you think about that? Like, how, how do we you know when we think about so for additional context, like when Fred Turner writes about this, Fred Turner kind of believes in the sort of traditional structures of the state. Basic, I might it might be slightly I might not be representing Fred perfectly. So Fred, if you're listening, I apologize. But you know, the, there's like you know what one way of dealing with that is to say like, well, no, look, we need these traditional structures of the state that protect rights. They give people the opportunity to file a grievance and say and say like look you know my rights are not being are not being respected in in whatever space i'm in and if we don't have that then things things get worse and 
I, I absolutely think there's, there's a place for that, but I'm also, I have to admit, I'm also interested in, in the idea of creating like more radically decentralized spaces that also respect, uh, rights, but I don't know exactly how to do that. I'm trying to figure out how to do that as I think many other people are. And I'm curious if you have thoughts about, you know, like, what does that, what does that look like? Is this just a matter of sort of not pulling down old structures that play an important role? Or is it a matter of like envisioning uh, the, the uh, institutions that respect dignity and protect rights in, in new spaces? That's actually a really good set of observations um, and thoughts, Matt. And it's something I think about a great deal. Um, you know, Fred Turner was, I think, you know, from Counterculture to Cyberculture is an excellent book for anyone who wants to understand the history of the internet um, and understand why it's important for us to know this history. Um, and I think there's a very great truth in the fact that what then ends up getting embedded within the technologies and infrastructures of the internet um, are values of what we sometimes politically call libertarianism, but essentially are like values of individual freedom, uh, individual agency, um, without always seeing those in context of the structures of power and privilege that give you certain kinds of individual freedoms and individual agencies. And when you have the imaginations of those who come out of those that ethos um, designing the, these digital technologies, then what you end up with is a user experience that is entirely based on those values. So the way I think about it uh, to offer a, the counterexample is what happens, for instance, or what would happen, the counterfactual, what would happen if a group of indigenous techies from the Pacific Islands were to have designed the internet, were to have first sort of thought about how TCPIP would work, what BGP looks like, what, you know, uh, network systems feel like, uh, and then how the web uh, works, um, what hyperlinks uh, feel like, how, how do we navigate between web pages, I think there would be a very interesting way in what in in the values that would be at the core of that design. I would imagine that some of those values would be deep collective interconnectedness and honoring of sentience that is beyond just human, right? Um, mm -hmm. Not mm -hmm. to honor this, the 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 sort of assumed sentience of the machine in the ways that, you know, the folks, the singularity folks might think. Uh, most frightening concept in the world. <laughs> but anyway, um, I love that, you know, we, we're thinking about machine sentience when we don't even sort of humanize each other yeah. and humanize other forms of sentience that exist in the world. Uh, indigenous knowledge systems, many indigenous knowledge systems, they're not monolithic, of course. For instance, recognize and remind us that humans are the youngest form of life on this planet, that every other form of life are our elders. 
So what would that form of epistemic knowledge of ways of knowing, doing, and being have meant for the values of an internet or a digital infrastructure created that way? Right. So that counterfactual I'm offering as a way to imagine what might have been different depending on who had constructed this uh, internet. At the same time, you know, Fred Turner is right also. The internet would not be here, at least our present form of the internet wouldn't be here without public funding. Mm -hmm. I mean, the internet comes out of defense funding in the United States. And so much of the internet around the world, just reminding those who, who, who may not be internet infrastructure scholars that it's what at the moment the internet is more than 70,000 networks connected around the world. Um, so much of it has been through public funding. And yet what happens when we either root our understanding of the internet in the individual or in the institution, which is to say, we think of all states as the same, all corporates as the same, um, all nonprofits as the same, is that we forget to analyze both the intention of the technology, the design of the technology, and the impact of the technology, right? Or equally, the intention of the use and control and the impact of the use and control. So when you talk about decentralized systems, for instance, I would rather ask us to imagine a world in which our internet infrastructures are distributed, that they have different nodes of centralization and decentralization based on what we are trying to do. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like small communities cannot. I mean, it is very difficult for them to handle some of the economies of scale that are offered by a centralized node. Yeah. However, if that centralized node is oppressive, then we know that small communities do really, really amazing hacks around connectivity around across the last mile, mesh networks, you know, local networks. But that is not necessarily the way that all networks need to be. What happens when you have, on the other hand, rather than this kind of crazy um, vacuuming up of humans as data that the big proprietary companies do, but rather smaller distributed data sets governed by the communities from which that data comes. What does that, what does that mean for our algorithmic uh, world? How, how does that change from, you know, the, the experience of algorithmic oppression to algorithmic justice, for instance? So, so I, I'm in fact using uh, a, f a, a concept that my partner actually uses because he is an in internet infrastructure scholar. Uh, you might want to have him on at some point, Matt. But um, he calls it distributed governance, mm -hmm. right? Rather than centralized governance or decentralized governance, infrastructures like the internet need a form of distribution where based on what we need them for, we have nodes of centralization and and uh, the spread of decentralization. The other way that I also think about it is 
how do we make sure that those who are not yet visible in this leadership and governance are talking to each other so that they're building solidarity, they're building a critical mass, they're building the power to push back, to resist. Because we're resisting a bunch of things right now. We're resisting the actual everyday oppression that big tech has over us, the ways that we are no longer even consumers, but actually data points. We are resisting the ways of that big tech's lack of care and duty of care makes our everyday experience on the on the internet often deeply violent and painful. We are resisting the fact that we don't see ourselves on the internet in terms of public knowledge. We are resisting the fact that these technologies are often alien to the ways that we think and work and do, and that we have to learn to do them that way. We are resisting the fact that the internet is incredibly monolingual rather than representing over 7,000 languages that humans speak and communicate with. So we're resisting all these different structural elements of power and privilege. And the only ways that I can think about that resistance being powerful is in this form of not just distributed governance, but distributed imagination and distributed resistance. So when you think about the... Can you say a little bit more about, you know, some of the sort of ways, some of the ways to do this, some of the things you have in mind? So, so for example, when it comes to like organizing distributed resistance, what does that look like? And or when you think about the basic architectural decisions in the systems that we build, how can some of those be improved? Just one thing I have in the back of my mind here is, you know, the idea of one-way links versus two-way links, right? There was this guy, uh, Ted Nelson, who, you know, back in the day had this idea of that links should always go two ways so that so that information always retains its context so that you never sort of, you know, which, which seems to like, you know, like when you were talking about sort of, you know, what would the internet look like if it was designed by a different culture or something? That's the kind of thing that I think of. At the same time, I think that, I actually think that that's not, it's maybe not that radical. Like, you know, Ted, Ted Nelson is, is still just like a white guy from Northern California who had a kind of interesting idea. And I, I, I'm at, I think that if indigenous Pacific Islanders had designed the internet, they would have done something much more radical. <laughs> so what does it, yeah, what does it look like? Uh, it's really amusing you say this because I met Ted Nelson at one point um, at the Internet Archive, you know, Friday lunch at the Internet Archive where you meet everyone. And I remember having this really interesting conversation with him where I was talking about the politics of the internet. And he kept saying to me, not the politics of the internet, the politics of the web. And I said, no, Ted, the politics of the internet. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, no, 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 In the, the politics of the web. We, we, it was a very interesting conversation. I hope I can have it once again with him. But this is an excellent example. I should have used that example with him saying, your own idea about hyperlinks is, is a political choice. It has it has design implications and and implications of politics, but um, I think the way that I look at it is that 
anytime you look at, to think about a digital, um, a radical digital project, you just have to look at any radical project in the world, right? Um, and yes, of course, it, it might feel a little different digitally, but we're no longer in a world where we think about online and offline as a binary. None of us do. We recognize that we are digitally embedded just as, you know, digital infrastructure is physically embedded. So um, we're on this continuum of the online to the offline, all of us who are digitally connected. Um, and those of us who are not, even if um, we don't have agency and control over that. So um, I think of a few principles and practices around this, and I, I'll just offer you a f- some of the things we do that demonstrates this or has a flavor of it and some of the things that other extraordinary people do in the world. Um At the core of um, a different imagination, I think, and at the core of many of the imaginations of marginalized communities around the world, is a very strong sense of collective imagination. So the dance between the individual and the collective. There's a great understanding that we are, we both have individuality, but we are also Relational, it is always relational between us and the collective. When you design that way, then immediately there is a really extraordinary creativity around both what the individual brings and then what the collective works on together. And it becomes reflexive, right? It's the individual to the collective, back to the individual. Um, And One of the ways that I think about this, for instance, is any community-led or um, independent archive, a people's archive, right? Why is it different from a mainstream institutional archive? It's because the textures, the flavors of the way you even think about space is different, right? So... Um, just as an example, um, there's a there's the Black Cultural Archives in uh, the UK, in London. It took decades for it to be set up, but it's an archives of Afro-descendant folks in the United Kingdom, uh, particularly Afro-Caribbean folks. Um, it is one of the few people's archives of its kind. It's one of the few that has... Uh, physical presence as well as a digital presence. Um, And when you think about how that space is constructed and who uses it and how they use it, it's very differently um, experienced than the British Museum or the British Library, right? Um, what is archived is very different from the British Museum or the British Library. Um, it's it's not just academic publications. It's certainly not, you know, uh, treasures from a colonized past. Um, it is often memory of a colonized past and and present. It is told through those 
who have been through these histories or, or who are descendants of those histories, right? The, the, those who take you through that experience, who narrate that history, are very much those who have the lived experience of it. Um, so that the way you even participate in understanding these histories and recognizing their multiplicity and their plurality is to, to recognize at the heart of it both the transgenerational trauma that has been part of Afro-Caribbean history in the United Kingdom and the immense creativity and imagination with which the empire has struck back, right? Um, that sense of context to bring back what you said about Ted Nelson, that sense of context, that sense of design, that sense of leadership, and that sense of a collective holding of what is, what is not a homogenization of history, but a, a holding of multiple strands of a heterogeneous history, right? That, that there is a plurality of histories that are being collectively held is a very different um, flavor than most colonial archives. Yeah. Though, you know, to be fair to archivists of the present, they are trying to break that uh, experience, but it's still very hard. And so if you then take that example of, 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 the, of the physical archive that is different when it is led imagined and and uh, curated by those who are part of that living history and then imagine the internet or, or digital projects of the same kind, you get that flavor of um, what it could be like. So um, in whose knowledge's case, just for as an example, we write collaboratively, we write collectively. Everything that we write or we speak um, um, tends to be a collaborative process. So we are we 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 tend to uh, push the boundaries of academia, for instance, by writing in peer-reviewed journal articles in multi multivocal with multivocality, with multiple voices. So we it's a collaboratively written piece. We uh, embed audio in it. Uh, we sometimes push the visual. Um, and so just, and even the visual, the elements of what is visual is based very much on, you know, the different cultures that are, that are uh, and the politics and the backgrounds of those who are writing or speaking. Um, so every element is as intentional as possible, as thoughtful as possible, as respectful as possible, and... Um, as honoring of the different imaginations as possible. There's something really interesting about how technology, at least big tech, moves towards a kind of homogen homogenization, a kind of flattening of difference, because it's as though we are terrified of difference. Mm. We want everyone to look like us, to feel like us, to be like us. And by us, I mean, you know, whatever version of the man we're thinking about. And yet, 
liberation is really, you know, there's a wonderful um, feminist activist uh, called Charlotte Bunch who says, um, revolution is a symphony of liberations. And so liberation is really an honoring of multiplicity, of plurality, of difference. And what will it mean to have a digital infrastructure then that is actually multiple digital infrastructures that are imagined and experienced differently with different communities being able to actually control and govern that? In some ways, the early internet was that, right? I mean, the early, early internet with, you know, with all of its flaws and problems, but there was a way in which the early bulletin board systems, the early online spaces, it was already hugely skewed and who could and couldn't access it. But there was a way in which some of those early spaces were, it still had a flavor. Each of them had a different flavor. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And now there's, there's this, Part of what has happened with big tech and the way that, you know, Silicon Valley tech capital has taken over uh, our digital experience is that the only difference we are kind of allowed is what some techie sitting in Palo Alto or Menlo Park has decided we can experience, right? Um, and so I think there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a great... Um, boundlessness, there's a great potential possibility as people take back control. There's a fascinating um, example in Aotearoa, uh, New Zealand, of a a Maori uh, community who has decided to have their own um, speech-to-text translation work and linguistics software and they control the data set. They control the tech, the actual infrastructure. Mm-hmm. They, they decide on the use. And they have basically uh, decided, the community of Papa Rio has decided that um, they will certainly not sell their data to proprietary companies, but they will also not open it up to the free and open source movement. Because for them, uh, the free and open source movement is also, with all its good intentions, is also another form of privilege that their community yeah. members have never been able to access. And so what does what happens when we when we have more and more of paparios in yeah. different parts of the world, right? That's that's my hope. That's that's my imagination. Gotcha. Yeah, that's that's hopeful. I think it's interesting to think about something like Wikipedia because i mean i'm i'm really interested in sort of your cr- critique of wikipedia which, and i i completely agree with it but i i do have some sort of sense of like unease or ambivalence with it because precisely because wikipedia in in many ways has accomplished something that like no other project in the history of the internet has managed to accomplish which is to which is to kind of be a genuine public good not really controlled by capital, but it doesn't have this texture of plurality that you're that you're uh, that you're discussing. And um, if you think about the if you think about the early internet, where you had these different sort of communities, there's a kind of a 
it's not perfect, but there's a kind of an obvious rough parallel between that and like the sort of, you know, decentralized web three thing now where there's lots of different communities, which are all quite, quite different or whatever, but you know, there's not a, most of the web three communities that exist are dominated by privileged people. Right. And I really suspect that that's also true of the early internet communities. You know I mean? I think may, may I mean, maybe <laughs> I'm not sure what you may correct me if I'm wrong, but perhaps it's like rose colored memory to think that those weren't <laughs> like that way. Oh, no, they the, totally yeah. were. I okay. was just, the, the only facet of those communities that I was sort of pointing to was that they were still elements of self-governance and self-design that we've, we've lost that as well. Right. Yeah. Well, but you do see that in, in like blockchain communities. Now you do see this element of self-governance and self-design, right? Uh, And uh, who's again, who's, but yeah, but it's, but you see what I mean? There's the, there's a parallel. It's the same problem actually. Again, it's just the same. That is true. Um, That is true. I will say that some of the early uh, communities online um, included some of us who were privileged enough from the global south to be on it, right? Yeah. Uh, our first years of university or whatever, we, we could get online and be on it. But there's always been privilege. So I, I totally agree with you. Um, I, I don't think we're disagreeing at all. And you are right that even even with the the... There's an there's an illusion, if you like, of 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 self governance as well. That's part of it. Um, uh, but but Wikipedia is a good example of what you and I are both talking about, which is that you have there's an outright critique of what big tech is doing. Then there's a critique to be had of even the spaces that we think of as better than big tech. Yeah, and yeah. the reason for that is because if we if we feel righteous about the spaces that we have constructed that are um, in resistance to big tech um, and honor them without some tough love, yeah, then we are not being transformative at right. all, right? right? And so often, because I am a Wikipedian, I will talk to my community, I will talk to Wikipedians and Wikimedians and say, this is my offering of tough love. Because yeah. I love this community. I love being part of it, this is critical infrastructure, and we need to do so much more, right? Um, and I think there's an element of that, Matt, to sort of bring it a little bit full circle to that sort of Fred Turner reminder of yeah. the original internet culture, which is that there's a certain righteousness, you know, a self-righteousness uh, uh, and, a, and a kind of... Um, the hubris is 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 sort of in there's a kind of self congratulatory mode here look yeah. at what we've done how cool is this right yeah. um and of seeing in the internet as sort of a, a disruption of history of seeing it as exceptional when to be honest everything we say about the internet has been said about other infrastructures in the past right it is true that it has changed the speed and the range through which we communicate, but there is a similarity to other infrastructures, particularly communications infrastructures in the past. And there's a similarity to the dynamics of power. So Wikipedia is, in my tough love, one of the things uh, that we and 
not just I, but all of us who are sort of trying to remind the Wikipedians who have created this infrastructure over the last 20 years is that if it is truly to be the sum of all human knowledge, which is, you know, a powerful mission, who is human on Wikipedia? Who is missed out? And who gets to tell that story? Who gets to write that content? And not just that, but what are the ways in which we can go beyond the notion of knowledge gaps, which is where Wikipedians are right now. So there's a gap in content, there's a gap in contributors, but how do we go beyond that to say there's a gap in justice, there's a gap in who gets to participate in this incredible volunteer community with the same kind of uh, powers and uh, credibility that, you know, the stewards and the admins of the Wikimedia movement do. Um, and just as an example, um, to bring it home a little bit, um, I've asked this kind of anecdotal question to, to friends over the years who are within the movement, but I've asked an American white man, for instance, how much of his childhood can he find on Wikipedia, right? instances of the books he read, the events that he went mm -hmm. through, the inspirations of his life. I've asked that question of myself. I've asked that question of uh, black and brown and trans women and men from the global south. And a cis white man from the States is likely to tell me about 90% of my childhood is represented by Wikipedia. I will find mm -hmm. something. And it, it will be okay. And in many of our cases, less than 50%, mm -hmm. right? But, and, it goes deeper than that. It goes to uh, the kinds of ways in which Wikipedia is even constructed and written, right? And by that, and this is where I move beyond content and contributors to one of the great pillars of Wikipedia guidelines and, and policy is the notion of neutrality, right? Yeah. That all content on Wikipedia must be neutral. Now, it's a guideline that is used with good intention, of course, as all these things are. Um, the idea is let's not have people, you know, inflecting it with, you know, crazy political views that are uh, problematic, we should be unbiased. We should be balanced. But as we know, and as social scientists tell us increasingly, there's no such thing as neutrality. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely no such thing as neutrality. Mm -hmm. Fact is still embedded in power. Whose yeah. facts do we know more of, right? Do we know uh, Jagdish Chandra Bose as well as we know Marconi in terms of the development of the history of the radio? We do mm -hmm. not. I know Jagdish Chandra Bose because he's Indian. But if I ask that question to anybody who, who's, you know, who, who listens to the radio, they would all have heard of Marconi. They would not have heard of Bose, right? Yeah. What does that mean? So facts are embedded in power. Um, and when we talk about neutrality, what it can do, which it often does on Wikipedia, 
is it pushes against every form of knowledge that doesn't have the evidence that is understood through the Western knowledge system. So Wikipedia, even as it sees itself as a community project and a crowdsourced project, um, many of my communities will never use the word crowdsource because the word crowd itself for us, as you can imagine, often has elements of violence. Um, So we'll say community sourced, but it's based still in uh, elements of the Western academic system and in notions of the Western encyclopedia, right? So it has to be based on reliable sources. And most Wikipedians want those reliable sources to be peer-published reliable sources, books, peer-published journal articles, uh, well-known newspapers, and so on, right? Now, again, that's not a bad thing by itself. But what Wikipedians have to understand is who do you leave out yeah. when you have that at the core of it, right? Yeah. So what if we were to move from the notion of neutrality to the notion of evidence? Because evidence is important, right? So what is an evidence-based knowledge system or repository of knowledge? What happens when we move the notion of evidence from just reliable published material, which are most often in Eurolingual languages. I mean, you know, Google did a projection when they were first doing Google Books and they found that there are, I don't know, approximately 130 million books ever published, most of them in European languages. There are over 7,000 languages. Languages, language is a proxy of knowledge. And yet most of us in the world have not had our knowledge is published in the same way as European or North American knowledge. So what happens when the sources of evidence are also shifted to be different? What happens when we have oral citations? What happens when we have visual citations? What happens when we have um, citations of sound that are not just spoken, right? I mean, how, how can we push the notion of what evidence is to recognize the many different forms of evidence in the many different forms of knowledge systems that exist in the world today. Yeah. And that's the kind of journey we want Wikipedians to be on with us. Yeah. This is totally fascinating. So like, if I'm understanding correctly, it's like you might say that the problem with, you know, a problem with Wikipedia is that it it basically prohibits contestation. It says that it is not a place of contestation, right? It's a place where just, neutral knowledge is cataloged and for that reason because it disallows contestation it reifies a certain kind of of knowledge am i did i get that right actually it's a little different than that because it it loves contestation in some ways um you know when i first started editing wikipedia even before i started editing wikipedia i used to my my anthropologist uh, heart was overjoyed by the talk pages because, you know, the talk pages are where people discuss the substance of the article itself. Um, and everything on the talk page is a contestation of what is on in the article. Right, right. But the, but the contestation there is based on an ability to understand and be comfortable with argumentation. 
to prove your point, to prove your position, to back it up with evidence, right? With reliable sources and citations. So so it's not so much contestation in that sense. What it is, is that Wikipedia's notion of neutrality is that there should be no expressed political opinion in an article, right? So this is not opinion. This is fact, and you are um, you, you are essentially uh, offering fact by backing up your statement with reliable sources and citations, right? To right. to establish the fact. Um, and so what that does is that without recognizing that fact is embedded still in power without recognizing that reliable sources are still embedded in power, what you will end up with is what happened to me when I first edited Wikipedia with a full-length article, right? I, I Not even full-length. I started what is called a stub, a paragraph, and it was on an uh, uh, African feminist okay. uh, who, who's a well-known philanthropist. I By then, I'd been sort of copy-editing Wikipedia for over two years. I sat and wrote a paragraph of four or five lines with about 11 references. And I chose the person, B.C. Adelaide Fayemi, because I knew that there would be good citations around her. Okay, you know, she's, she's very well known in Nigeria. She's known across Africa. The organization she set up is very, very well known. So I wasn't even going to the, you know, the outliers. I was pretty much, I, I felt quite in the middle. Um, I did this. And within five minutes, I had what is called a speedy deletion notice, which basically is, this is rubbish, you know, take it off if you can't prove why it should be here. The only reason that I, as a newbie Wikipedian, didn't walk away from Wikipedia for the rest of my life is because I was at that time sitting in the first ever Wiki Daba, which is the uh, gathering of African Wikipedians. And I was sitting next to someone who had been the ch- one of the chairs of the Wikimedia Foundation boards, a long-term Wikipedian, and I could kind of nudge her and say to her, and I had been editing during my lunchtime, and I could nudge her and say, Florence, what do I do about this? And Florence looks at it and goes, this is ridiculous. <laughs> and basically like sort of marches off to the talk page and says, this is ridiculous. This does not make any sense. You have not substantiated why it should have a speedy deletion notice, et cetera, et cetera, right? And I could then substantiate back. And part of it was recognizing that whoever this Wikipedian was who had strolled by uh, on a fine, you know, afternoon in, in Johannesburg was probably sitting somewhere in the States, had never heard of someone like BC Adelaide Fayemi. The name itself was... What the hell is that name? Um, Nigerian newspapers are considered to be, you know, uh, deeply controversial. They're not sort of good um, uh, publications, uh, you know, with good journalistic values. They probably assume that, you know, Der Spiegel and New York Times is everybody's local newspaper, mm-hmm. right? Um and so, and, and Nigeria is one of the largest countries in the world, right? Yes. Literally one of the largest countries in the world. So for us not to recognize how skewed 
publishing is, academia is, all the different sources of, um, you know, mainstream um, knowledge as we know it, public knowledge is, and therefore its impact on Wikipedia means that essentially Wikipedians are still struggling to, um, yeah, to, to accept that the humanity of some of us is not yet the humanity of everyone. Yeah. And not just the humanity of some of us, but really literally the humanity of most of us in the world. Yeah. So when you think about remedying this, do you do you locate the problem with the institution of Wikipedia or with the culture of the people on it? So in other words, w- you know, would you, I mean, I, I, I assume, you know, both and might be the the answer but are you more interested in kind of changing the hearts and minds of the people who occupy these spaces or in changing the institutional setups or creating you know more plurality of wikipedias or something like that um both and is the answer um just as an example we recently um co-convened with Wikimedia Deutschland, which is the institution or the, the, the sort of Wikimedia chapter that holds Wikidata, which is the largest free and open source structured data repository uh, online today, um, and Wikimovemento Brazil, which is the Brazilian-based uh, Wikimedian group. We co-convened a conversation on decolonizing structured data. Right, because most people, lay people, don't understand how structured data uh, sort of influences us. But of course, structured data is machine-readable data that sort of governs the way that we now interact with most apps, most platforms in the world. Mm-hmm. It tells us what to look at and how to look at it. Um, and what we were trying to get um, both the Wikidata team, the technologists of Wikidata. Uh, who have been working on Wikidata for nine years, as well as the contributors of Wikidata, who are the, you know, the volunteers around the world, to recognize is that Wikidata and the notions of structured data are still very much centered in one particular understanding of categorizations, of classifications, right? It is a very particular Western 18th century onwards um, Enlightenment-driven yeah. version of the world that is the categories of Wikidata. And when you categorize that way, a whole host of the ways that we live and the ways that we know each other are completely lost. One of the examples I was pointing out um, was, for instance, the um, the uh, Australian indigenous, indigenous notion of Jukurpa. Um, which Western anthropologists have called dreaming or dream time, right? Um, and then have proceeded to call it Aboriginal art. Chukupa mm-hmm. is not art. It is a visual representation of philosophy, mm-hmm. of mythology, of ways of understanding the past, present, and future, literally ways of being, mm-hmm. Right. But if you don't understand that, and if that is not even something that your taxonomy, your ontology can comprehend, then what we will end up continuing to do is to continue to reify and 
uh, exacerbates the notion of dream time as Aboriginal art, mm-hmm. right? And so in doing that work, we have to work both with the individual contributors to, to sort of help expand their consciousness around this work that they're doing, and we have to work with the institutions like Wikimedia Deutschland and the Wikimedia Foundation uh, and the technologists and other staff who are there um, because transformation is always going to be a dance between the individual and the institution. Um, and it's always going to be both transformation from within these institutions and from without it. Yeah. It's always going to be that. And I say this as someone who was part of those institutions, right? I, 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 I was on the executive team of the Wikimedia Foundation for three years. So I recognize that these are difficult conversations to have. But because they are difficult, we cannot get away from the urgency and the necessity to have them. Yeah. And that's really the way in which we work. We, we, we do both. Uh, yeah. Right. We we play that that sort of dance as far as we can. We ally with as many friends and co-conspirators as possible. We see this work as solidarity in action because none of this can be done with any single individual or any single organization. This is work we all have to do together. Yeah. And so it is always going to have to be a collective journey yeah if you like it collective uncovering yeah so there there are so many just incredibly deep questions about universality in your in your ideas that are just i feel like i'm just like <laughs> i feel like i'm just in the sort of kindergarten of, of like so what strikes me is like in a way on the surface of it just ostensibly many of the things that have happened in the past you know in modernity have had to do with translation of sort of making things comprehensible across cultural lines and things like that. But it seems like the those processes of translating things across cultural lines creates this it can it can create a flattening because the terms in which we translate are cultures or our ways of thinking in order to be understood by the whole world can we can reify those we can we we can confuse the the map with the territory right so in other words by creating a creating a map of whatever territory we're we're mapping we can lose the difference between the map and the territory that's beautifully put that really is um and translation is a really interesting choice of word and it's a powerful choice of word and I'm going to use it very uh, sort of um, uh, literally and then go metaphoric with it. One of the things we're engaged in doing and hopefully this will be out in February, we're hoping to launch in February, is what we're calling the State of the Internet's Languages Report. So we're looking at the multilinguality of the internet and, and trying to see how multilingual it is and it's Really, I'm, I'm, I'm not sort of giving away the plot by saying it is woefully not multilingual. Um, and in fact, um, most of us in the world have to use our nearest colonial language, as we say, 
to access the internet and to access content. Now, one of the really interesting things is as we were doing the research around this, is that we realized that the most translated book in the world, Mm -hmm. one, one shot at it, Matt. The Bible. The Bible in over 2,000 languages. The most translated document in the world? The Bible. Well, no, document as opposed to, to book, but the most uh, translated document in the world is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Oh, interesting. In over, in over 500 languages, right? Now, both of these, fascinatingly, have a very interesting form of universality. Yeah. Embedded in them. Oh, yeah. Different... Yeah. But, but related and similar, you know. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, I, I was just going to say. I mean, this, it's a rabbit hole. We don't have time to go down. But the but the Bible was not. You know, the Old Testament was not necessarily conceived as a universal document when it was first created. Correct. And the way again it's used becomes universalizing. Right. Yeah. It's why right. it's one of the reasons I prefer the Old Testament to the New. But anyway, <laughs> uh, also a rabbit hole. But yeah. Um, yeah. Um, you know, it's a great telenovela is, is the Old Testament. Um, but there's a way in which, um, you know, for most of us from the global south, the church, the state, and the corporation from the 1600s onwards have been in an unholy, pun intended, nexus to govern our bodies, our minds, our resources, our imaginations, and to completely dehumanize us, right? Yeah. That's what the project of colonialism has been and continues to be included in, in digital spaces now. But the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is a really interesting uh, example as well, because even as we think about human rights being important for all of us, there are elements in which that universality is also not necessarily contextually understood. Yeah. Right? And so I reject in some ways, or I critique, let me put it this way, because I do use the human rights framework when it's appropriate. I critique the universality, or I critique the notion of universality. I also critique the notion of cultural relativism, because in both of these notions, there is a way in which they're co-opted and used to actually oppress communities in yeah. different ways, right? Cultural relativism internally even more and universality sort of more externally. When we, when we are embedded in pluralism, however, we are in a sense doing exactly what you say, which is we are doing our best to celebrate difference without flattening it, but also not to use difference as a form of oppression. Right. And I think that, for me, it all centers around power, right? How do we use power? How do we abuse power? What is the actual lived experience and practice of what happens to us? It doesn't matter what words we use, what words we don't use, but how in our relationships with each other are we ultimately living our values? Mm -hmm. And how how do they then sit in our bodies and in our minds and in our imaginations. So so there's a really interesting way in which um, that universality and universalism that is at the heart of tech becomes an issue because Silicon Valley then assumes that 
the global is literally the hyperlocal of Silicon Valley. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. So the notion of globality is used and abused, but they don't actually understand what it means to be global in any meaningful way. Yeah. Yeah. Right? If there's if there's a if there's an attack on a user of uh, Facebook in Menlo Park, that's more likely to be taken up immediately and looked at rather than, you know, three years of, you know, Burmese refugees and the Rohingya who literally went through genocide because Facebook could not invest in a Burmese language translation team. Yeah, yeah. That's unbelievably three years. That's unbelievably powerful. (laughs) What you just said is so true. (laughs) I mean, it's insane. It's insane. It's insane. It's insane. I I, I wish we had another hour. This is completely amazing. I'm anyway. I'm the the. uh, I'm thinking now about how the. You know, because I mean, for so long, actually, you, you know, as you just said, universality has been like an ideal, right? It's been thought it's been, you know, the more we can universalize knowledge, the better, right? And, and it's interest. It's really interesting to think about, you know, yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think you can trace that all the way back to sort of New Testament and I'm also thinking about the Tower of Babel, which is an, which is a pretty interesting parable in this context, right? It can you can read it in two ways, right? You can you can read it as a you can read it as a tragedy. Oh no, <laughs> we couldn't build the tower anymore. Or you can read it as uh, okay, you know we <laughs> we uh, it was stupid to try to build that tower. And, um, and what happens if you don't imagine a Tower of Babel at all, but you yeah. imagine, I don't know, the bazaar of multiple languages, right? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. To use another sort of internet meme. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, think, I think at the core of this is that power is contextual. We always have to remember context. We always have to recognize that those of us who are oppressed today in one context, could be oppressors tomorrow or in the next hour in another context. We always have to have that, you know, um, discomfort of recognizing the dynamics of power like a second skin, right? I have to be harder on myself than anybody else in thinking about power and how I walk through the world. Um, It all comes down to the practice of it. And I think it's really, really important that as we look at the digital world and at digital infrastructures, we recognize that those who create the problems do not have the imagination to solve those problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? So they can and must support us as we do it because... Sadly, they're also the ones with the resources. But the imaginations of those of us who have been at the front lines of the oppressions of digital infrastructure need to be at the core of the design of whatever multiple sets of futures that are going to come. And 
safety, to be honest, is a really low bar. I don't just want an internet that are safe for me, though I think that's a necessary but insufficient condition. I want internets, I want a digital set of infrastructures where I can be joyful, where I can be the fullness of myself and where all my communities can be the fullness of their multiple selves. That's the set of internets that I want. Beautiful. Um, thank you so much for uh, speaking today. Um, really, really grateful for, uh, for the time and for the, and for the conversation. Uh, this was uh, uh, totally amazing. Um, so, yeah, I clearly you and I need to have like you know long conversations to be able to go down those rabbit holes, man. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the rabbit hole conversations. At yeah, some me point. too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again to Anusuya Sengupta and Matt Pruitt for that liberating conversation about the intentionality design, and impact of tech, and how we can turn algorithmic oppression into algorithmic justice through distributed governance. As a note, the Who's Knowledge State of the Internet Languages report will be linked in the description. This conversation was initially produced by Aaron Benavides for RxCTV and was shown at the 2021 Radical Exchange Annual Conference. The Radical Exchange's podcast is produced by G. Angela Corpus, Jennifer Marone, and Matt Pruitt and is co-produced and audio engineered by myself, Aaron Benavides. And finally, we'd like to extend a big thanks to listeners like you. Radical Exchanges is a Radical Exchange Foundation production. You can help support the Radical Exchange Foundation by visiting RadicalExchange.org.